If you love how Dan Rather unravels amazing true stories, you got to check out Music's Greatest Mysteries. That podcast will really get you thinking. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview, he has become a worldwide celebrity. Best known for his brutal honesty. You have one of the worst voices I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Living up to nicknames like Mr. Nasty and Judge Dredd. That was appalling with a capital A. If somebody comes in with absolutely no talent whatsoever, I think it's a crime to say to these people, we'll take a couple of singing lessons and it will all work out. Come on, come but Simon Cowell is more than just a judge who leaves contestants speechless. His vision is changing the face of the entertainment world, creating hit television shows and making stars, often at the same time. I always say hits pay the bills. At the end of the day, you can't survive without being number one. A one-of-a-kind 21st century media mogul, as you've never seen him before. You're a father now for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there have been surprises in my life, but that's number one. Simon Cowell, tonight on The Big Interview. And everyone to your left, together, please. If you're... For nine seasons, Simon Cowell was the judge everyone loved to hate. But love him or hate him, they still watch by the millions. You're not just the girl to be, you're the person to be. During his time on American Idol, the reality show became one of the most successful programs in television history. And Cowell went on to create his own reality program called The X Factor in his native England, which he eventually brought to America. Simon Cowell is also behind the hit show America's Got Talent. And if that wasn't enough, he's moving into the movie business. So who is this ruthless entrepreneur who seems to have his finger on the pulse of pop culture? I sat down with Cowell recently, and you might be surprised by the man behind the reputation. Well, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for being here. How can I make you feel important in this interview? You already have. You're sitting here. <laughs> no, I feel important. No. I know it's one of your sayings that the first thing you do try to do is convince the other person that you want to make them feel important. It's good that you mentioned that. It's something my dad taught me when, when I was very young. And I asked him a question once, you know, how he runs a company. And he said, it's very simple. He said, everybody has a sign on their head that says, make me feel important. Uh, and it's something I've always been very aware of, that when you make a show and you've got 150 people on it, every person on that show rightly has to feel that they're acknowledged for the part they play. If you start thinking it's all about you, you've got a big problem. Well, about your father, uh, two other things you've been quoted as saying. He was or was not the originator of Don't Leave the Fair Too Late. 
Well, he, he said an abbreviation of that. The most direct person who actually said that was when I met David Geffen. We went on his boat with some friends and, and we were all dying to ask the same question. If you could give us one piece of advice, what would it be? And he said, it's very simple, always know when to leave the fair. And that stuck with me. And was it your father or Geffen or someone else who said, take yes for an answer and leave? Um, it was when someone says yes, shut up. That's it. Yeah, and, and I have lived my life like that, uh, which is if, if I'm fortunate enough to sell something, once they've said yes, I'm out of the room in five seconds. Because I've been in the, in the reverse situation where I've said yes to somebody or some, or some people, and after I've said yes, they keep talking and talking and talking, and then I'm thinking, you know what, I wish I hadn't said yes now. So <laughs> it's really good advice. Just get out the room as quickly as possible. Well, you said you've lived your life that way. Have you always lived your life with this relentless honesty? I think so, yeah. Um, I mean, when I, I, when I was young, Dan, I, I got into the music business via the mailroom. Um, and you kind of hustle your way, you know, into the main part of the record company or the music publishing company as it was in those days. And you try and work your way up. And the interesting thing is, it's a business where they invest millions and millions of dollars, but they give you no training. So, you know, when you, when you screw up, and I did in the early days, I mean, I was told in no uncertain terms why I'd made a mistake. And I, I was taught tough love. Um, and in return, I try and do the same thing back because the worst thing you can do is, it, particularly when I do a talent show, if somebody comes in with absolutely no talent whatsoever and absolutely no chance of a career, I think it's, I think it's a crime to say to these people, we'll take a couple of singing lessons and it will all work out because it just doesn't work out that way. To do what I do, the only thing I, I, that bothers me is whether or not I'm relevant any longer. Uh, because I think if you're sitting on these shows, but you're not having hit records or hit artists in your real life, I think you look a bit of an idiot. Mm -hmm. So I, that's all I really care about, Dan, is that I can sit on one of these shows and justify why I'm there, because in my day job, I am creating hit artists. Um, otherwise, you're just a judge for hire, which I just couldn't do. Were you ever a pleaser, or have you always been a harsh your buzz kind of guy? Well, when I was at school, I was always in trouble for talking too much. <laughs> uh, and I got bored really quickly, and I kind of knew school wasn't for me or college or anything like that. So I was, I was impatient to, 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 to start working. And, and interestingly, when I was a very young kid, what I used to get a kick out of was making and earning my own money by washing cars, mowing lawns or whatever it was. I used to love that. And then when I used to go to school and I was bored, uh, I would get into a lot of trouble. So I, I don't think I've never really been a pleaser. After high school, Cal worked various odd jobs, but his introduction to the music business came at EMI Music in London, where his father worked. Cal got a job there in the mailroom, but his talent for spotting talent quickly moved him up the ranks. And it wasn't long before he started his own label called Fanfare Records, signing his then-girlfriend and the label's biggest success, Sunita. 
Cowell was living the high life, but not for long. Well, you made it big by definition of that time of your life, and then you lost it by the time you were 30. Tell yeah. me about that. What did you learn from that? Well, it was an interesting time because it was in the 1980s. I mean, the banks were really giving you a ton of money to spend. Mm -hmm. The stock market was going crazy. Uh, we all wanted Porsches. We all wanted nice houses. And we all believed the hype. And, uh, and I was doing okay. But then it all Excuse came... Me, this is in the music business. This is in the music business. I wasn't doing fantastic. I was doing okay but I was living way beyond my means. I'd borrowed money to buy a Porsche, to buy a, a nice house and, and everything. And I was out every night, I was spending a fortune, drinking and everything else. And then the whole thing came crashing down um, to a point where I think I owed the bank about half a million dollars and I had the equivalent of maybe $5 in my pocket to get a cab home to my parents. That's how bad it was. But I went home. Uh, I did a deal to pay off the bank, which took me three years, but I paid off every penny. Um, and it didn't bother me, interestingly enough. Once I got rid of everything, the Porsche, the house, I didn't want it. Um, and I was now living a more honest life, and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to start again, but I'll never borrow money again. Well, how humiliating was that, or was it, at age 30, to move back in with your parents? Well, funny enough, it wasn't embarrassing at all. If, in a weird way, Dan, I think it was more embarrassing me driving around in a Porsche I couldn't own or pretending I could own it than actually getting rid of the whole lot, buying a car for $7,000, which I could afford and I liked. Um, but I didn't lose a single friend and no one was, was harsh to me or made me feel embarrassed. My parents actually loved me going back to live with them. Um, but it was probably, in hindsight, the best thing that ever happened in my life because it taught me, you know, how you can get things spectacularly wrong. But it took me about three years to get myself back on my feet. Uh, as I said, I paid off the, the loan to the bank. So now you're 33, 34? Yeah, about that, 33, 34. Um, uh, I was given a chance to build a label with one of the large labels and then just slowly, bit by bit, I started to have more hits, more success. And it was probably round about that time when I understood the value of television uh, in selling records. And I, I kind of was one of the first to, I think, understand that and start to build an area within that where I was successful. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Simon Cowell. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Simon Cowell. The phenomenon of American Idol didn't begin in the United States. The show and Simon Cowell as the acerbic judge was based on a program from Great Britain called Pop Idol. I think Darius pipped you this evening. Which in turn, had been inspired by a show from New Zealand. It seemed natural to bring it all to the United States, but Cowell found out that coming to America wasn't so easy. I arrogantly thought I could sell the show as quickly in America, and I went to, I think, five or six networks and literally got thrown out of every single one. And then by luck, we sold the show to America, and that's how American Idol got on the air. 
Were you surprised it took off so well, so quickly? Yeah, I mean, I, I changed my mind again. I'd said yes to being on the American show, then I thought, you know what, I don't need this again. I mean, I had so much trouble in my life when Pop Idol came on the air. In Britain? Oh my God, it was like, is this worth it? <laughs> you know, what the papers were saying, what people were saying. It was fun, but it wasn't that much fun. It paid well. It paid okay. Yeah. Got better as the years went on, Dan. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the, we got a call to say that Fox had bought it. And I originally said yes, and I changed my mind. Then I changed my mind again, and I came over to film the show. And I was kind of thinking then, oh, this is going to be amazing. And then we'd rented this house, and the real estate agent said, I'm not sure about this show. And I said, why? He said, we've got a month's clause, break clause in the contract. Uh, and this is what the network had insisted on. So they didn't think it was going to be a hit. Um, and then I went, we shot the show. I went back to England, and then it, then it came on air, and I got this call to say, you know, the ratings were good, and you know, the rest was kind of history. A history that has been bittersweet for Cowell. A decade ago, he wanted to create a show of his own in his native England. He would call his new venture the X Factor. We've got the X Factor! But controversy and lawsuits followed over whether or not Cowell was ripping off the Idol brand. Cowell cannot talk about these specifics because of a settlement agreement, but it's clear that he feels creating the X Factor UK was one of the proudest moments of his career. I was coming off the number one show, and now I had to launch a new show. And uh, there was a lot of pressure. Uh, and the first week's ratings came in, they were okay. And then the second week, it just went crazy. And then from there on in, the show became a hit. And then, I th for two or three years, we were doing well, Dan. But what we hadn't done is broken a worldwide artist. And I remember thinking, if we didn't find an artist this year who could break and be a legitimate artist, this all may be over. Uh, and a girl called Leona Lewis came on the show. And she was outstanding. Um, she won the show and then she became one of the biggest selling artists in the world off the back of the show. And that's when I realized that, you know, these shows really do have a validity and there's a reason for doing them. But she was what I call a game changer. Cowell was bitten by the TV bug, but his biggest success was yet to come. In 2006, he launched America's Got Talent, And pretty soon, the Got Talent franchise was sweeping the globe. 63 countries now have their own version of the show. Making it, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the most adapted program in television history. For a lot of people, having the success that X Factor had would be enough. Enough success, enough money, enough glory, enough recognition. Well, it was an interesting story because trying to get that show made was a complete nightmare. Nobody wanted to take the show. And we managed to persuade 
um, a network in England to make a pilot, and, and it was unwatchable, this pilot. And just by accident or luck, someone from NBC in America called me, a guy called Craig, and said, I've heard you've got this, this show, what's it like? I said, it's fantastic. I've got seven <laughs> minutes to show you, because uh, the rest was unwatchable. Um, and rare, he bought it in the room, and it did rate really, really well. And then I then sold it back to the UK, and then three days before I was due to start filming in the UK, the broadcaster literally pulled the plug on it and said, we're not going to make the show, it's not going to be a hit. In Britain? In Britain. I said, I have 150 people waiting to, to film this show. So they said, we'll give you one day on it, 24 hours. And if it doesn't work in 24 hours, we're going to pull it. Thanks a lot. So I had to go up, I couldn't tell anybody. And then I think within five minutes of filming, I sent a text back to this guy saying, it's a hit, don't worry about it. And it, and, it, and it did become a hit. Is this the case that each country has, I don't know, Morocco has talent? Yeah. Colombia has talent? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what they do. They replicate the English show, the American show. Um, and just over the years, it's got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so, yeah, it's an important show now. From where does this creativity come? Um, well, interestingly, I'd say most of what we do originated years ago back in America. Uh, whether it was the Ed Sullivan show, uh, Live at the Apollo, Star Search. I used to love American talent shows. The Gong Show I loved. And I think The Gong Show was a huge inspiration for, for Got Talent because I thought it was so funny. Um, and I think without The Gong Show, we wouldn't have Got Talent. Or, or if, we, if there wasn't Star Search, there wouldn't be Got Talent. So, you know, you guys started all these shows. We just adapted them a little bit. Well, let's talk about the business. For a young person who's saying, I, I want to be that person, I, I want to be what you are today, what can they do, what should they be doing to give themselves a chance? Well, it's a good question, Dan. I think that what you, know, you and I had when we first started is what I call an apprenticeship. And I think we were both fortunate probably to have mentors who, I mean, I certainly had two or three people I in my life. Had them. You did as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I learned from them. And, and there was one guy, when I was in my 20s, I used to follow around like a dog. Uh, and I used to sit in the studio and watch him work. I mean, he never paid me, but I, it was like a free education. So I was patient, and I kind of gave myself about a 20, 25-year window to kind of learn and achieve what I wanted to achieve. I think the difference today is, is that very few people are prepared to wait that long. Because you have to learn to get good at these things. Well, your father didn't live to see your great success. No, it was it was a real tragedy that Dan. I mean, I was doing I was doing pretty well, but it was just before things went really well. He was there when I got my first number one record, which was a, a big achievement for me. Um, and he was always there to give me advice. But on the day he died uh, was the day I got news that a group I'd signed and really believed in. De had debuted at number one with their record, and I'd obviously called to give him the news, and, and the news I got back, you know, was that he passed away. I mean, there was a, an awful irony to that. Well, I want to come back to talking about business, but since your father's name has been raised, you're a father now for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there have been surprises in my life, but that's number one. When I, when I got that call, I've got some news for you. It's like, whoa. 
but uh, honestly, one of the best things, no, the best thing that's ever happened in my life. How has it changed you? I think it's made me a bit calmer. Uh, I think it balances your mind that one minute you could be worrying about something really stupid that's happening on your shows, and then you've got somebody in front of you, you know, who is alive and, and they're part of you. It's, uh, it, it's uh, a great uh, leveller. And you named your son after your father. Yes, I did. Did that decision come to you instantly and quickly? No, interestingly, uh, Lauren and myself came up with it. And, and funny enough, Lauren was more insistent than me because I wanted to call him Simon. <laughs> and then one day I called her and I went, maybe it's not a great idea. And she went, thank God you've said that because I've been worrying about this for the last three uh, so weeks. So you, you considered having him being Simon? 100%. No. 100%. Did you or did you not think that might place a very heavy load on him as he went through life? Well, I did in the end. Um, I think, you know, when he was old enough to go on Google and he would have typed in Simon Cowell, he might have had a few <laughs> misgivings. Uh, so I didn't want to give him that pressure. Right. <laughs> so Eric was a very, very good, <laughs> good, good decision. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Simon Cowell. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Simon Cowell. Let's talk about where the television business is, where the entertainment business is. First of all, 5, 10, 15 years from now, will we have television, in your opinion? Um, I think we will have TV in 15, 20 years' time. I think it's going to be still the most important thing. But, you know, what's interesting, I think if we had been talking even just a year ago, and you'd have asked me to say, you know, where do you think the future of TV is? And this was prior to House of Cards and Netflix. I would have given you a completely different answer. I think what's exciting after the success of House of Cards is that suddenly we have more buyers than we had 12 months ago, whether it's Yahoo, whether it's Netflix, Amazon, and this list is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. We're not so reliant upon the big networks as we used to be before. Creatively, when you look at the quality of something like House of Cards, I mean, just the direction, the writing, the cast, they're like movies. So I think TV's kind of gained back its credibility again. I actually hate going to the cinema. I went the other night. I mean, it was just the worst thing I've ever done. But you're in the movie business now, big time. I am, but I don't like going into movie theatres. We, we watched this movie the other day. I mean, I've got to tell you, watching 10 minutes of trailers in 3D with these stupid glasses and everything looks identical, and then the film comes on, after 15 minutes, I had to walk out. I mean, it was like being assaulted. Um, maybe I'm just showing my age, but I love, you know, movies with a story, but all these crazy special effects at the moment, it was just too much, and, and I hate 3D movies. Well... Yes, but One Direction has been made into a movie and now into a second movie, as I understand it. Yeah, that was in 3D, actually. I like, I like some 3D movies. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it was something I always wanted to do, uh, Dan. I think if I was a kid and you just said, what was my number one thing I'd like to do, I would have said I'd love to produce a movie. In 2013, Simon Cowell produced a documentary on the hit band One Direction. It's a group he knows well. 
The singers had originally auditioned as solo artists on the X Factor UK, but all were eliminated from the competition. Then Cowell had the idea of putting them together as a group, and they auditioned again. I remember looking up saying, thank you, God. I just knew we had some something incredible. The, the chemistry, the dynamic was unbelievable. And then they got into the live parts of the show. They were finalists. Good luck to everyone. We got all the way through to the final, and I'm already preparing my acceptance speech as their mentor. The second act, still in the final, is Rebecca. And they came third. Uh, and I wasn't expecting that. Zane, what's going to happen to One Direction now? Uh, we're definitely going to stay together. But then what was fascinating off the back of that was about two or three hundred what I called superfans who'd supported them all the way through the competition made it their, their job to promote this band around the world because I signed them to our record label even though they didn't win. Um, and then I saw something I'd never seen before in 30 years in the music business, which is fans, not a record label, marketing and promoting a band worldwide. To the point when we released their first album, and they'd only been to three countries, they went to number one in 43 countries simultaneously. And I still to this day owe and credit everything to this two or three hundred group of, of, of fans who just did the most phenomenal job I've ever seen. And that's now the age of promoting bands with what we have on the internet. That's when the internet is so powerful, it can do your job for you. I was posted to Great Britain as a news correspondent in the 60s. Were we nice to you? Very nice to me, I'm Good. happy to say. When I was there, an older, more experienced correspondent said to me, he said, Dan, I have this piece of advice for you. Because they speak the same language, sometimes we Americans forget that it is a different country. And that has echoed with me. You have made the transition. You brought programs that have been very successful in, in the United Kingdom to our country sort of seamlessly. And I'm interested to know whether that's still true. You know, I was told exactly the same thing back in reverse about, about Americans. Right. I heard that before I came to America, Dan. Um, but once I came to America, and maybe I was naive, but I, I realized that we, ha we had a very similar sense of humor. We all react to a strong emotion in the same way. If we hate someone or love somebody or feel compassionate about somebody, we have very, very similar emotions. I think the difference was when I first came here was I think you are more polite in America than we are in the UK. So, you know, the very first time I was you know, recording American Idol and told someone they were useless. Paula, who was sitting next to me, was like, you can't say that. It's like, <laughs> well, I can. Um, and, and she was shocked. And I think the audience were a bit shocked. But then I think they started to understand that, you know, that that's, that's the, the whole point of the show, is to try and be honest and, and not, you know, be lie to people, I guess. Well, I'm going to turn that on his head. I've always thought that People in Great Britain and the United Kingdom, if anything, are a little more polite than we are in this country. True, they may speak more bluntly, and I'm not here to blow smoke at you, but anybody who knows you, whatever your flaws are, you are a very uncommonly polite 
person, particularly for someone who's in, I'll go ahead and say it, in the entertainment field. How and why did that come about? Ah, uh, well, thank you. My mum taught me, she had an expression as a kid which she said to us, manners maketh the man. Um, and, and I suppose going back to what my dad said as well about acknowledging people around you. Um, I, I do have that ability uh, that if I walk in a room I'm aware of everybody and it's important that, that, that they feel part of what we do and appreciate it. And by the way, if you don't like people, you can't do this job. It's as simple as that. Well, tell me about that. Well, it, I, I think that, you know, when you're sitting as a judge, judging, judging these shows, I mean, this is one of the issues I have at the moment when you put too many singers on a judging panel. Singers don't want to find other stars. It's just not in their DNA. They only think about themselves. That is the nature of being a solo artist. I am a cold-hearted A&R guy. Record, I own a record label, so the only thing I'm interested in is finding a star. You put a singer in my seat and somebody 10 years younger than her comes on and is better than her, she does not want her to do well. It's a fact. That's why it's kind of crazy what's going on at the moment, that you've got singers judging other singers. It doesn't work. Well, having complimented you about your manners, and I love what your mother said, manners make us the man. What a nice saying. You know what's said about you on the negative side. So let's start with a few things. Uh, say to me, Dan, what you don't know about Simon is he's really greedy. <laughs> not the first time you've heard that. Greedy. <laughs> I'm not greedy. I'll tell you what it is. Because you said to me uh, a while ago, I must have made a lot of money when I first did Pop Idol or American Idol. I mean, the truth was I, I got paid nothing on the first series of Pop Idol. And I got paid not much more than nothing on the first show of American Idol. Once the show became successful, my feeling was if you're making a lot of money, then so should I. I mean, it's just fair. You can't have it all right. if I'm having a part of this. So I believe in balance. But as somebody, when we go out for dinner, I'm, I will always try and pay the bill. Uh, and I don't like people who don't try and pay the bill. I don't like meanness. Uh, but I've always been very strong about being paid what I believe I'm owed. What do you consider to be your biggest weakness or vulnerability? My biggest weakness is probably being led by your heart, not your head. Um, there are things I've done, artists I've signed, shows I've made, where my heart at that time, as I said, was, was, was definitely the more dominant and then your head kicks in a few weeks later and goes, what the hell have you done? Um, but at that point, uh, I am pretty good at holding my hands up and saying, that was my responsibility, that was my mistake. But um, it happens. And what you consider to be your best strength? I, I would say my best strength is, is that I, I'm a good listener. Uh, I like to have a lot of people in the room. I like to hear their opinions. Um, I understand that people outside of my company could have better ideas than us, and we have to be aware of that. From where does that come, this, this determination to listen and to be a good listener? It's not a, all that common a trait, particularly these days. I like every day to learn something new, um, and, and I'm curious. Uh, and I think that when we, you hire young people, they, 
have much more knowledge of what is happening in the world today than I do because they are on their phones, they are on the internet all day long, they're on way more different channels on the internet than I am, so they actually know more that's going on than I do. So it's their job to tell me rather than the other way around. <laughs> that's why we pay them. Professionally, best day of your life? I would say, Dan, it was the second week's ratings of X Factor when it cemented itself enough for me to know it was going to be a hit. This was after you'd had success on Idol, but Idol wasn't your program. X Factor is your program. You had a tough time selling it. You sell it, you get a one-time shot, what the poker players would call a one-card cut. And by the second week, you knew that your new baby was going to take off. You said it better than me. It's exactly what it was. And there was a lot of knives out there that, that second week. And I could feel them about to go into my skin. And it was, it was a real moment of relief, Dan, when that happened. Uh, because if it had gone the other way, it wouldn't have been great. And, you know, the truth is, uh, particularly in Hollywood, you do something wrong, you are toast. People do not want to touch you. They're superstitious. If you fail at something, as far as they're concerned, you failed for life. You've become typhoid time. And by the way, I get it. When we do something wrong, I say to my company, <laughs> just be clear, no one's going to want to talk to us for six months. Right. So don't worry about it. Don't take it personally. Just use this time. Come back with another hit. You have another hit, everything's reversed. I ask you about professional life. In your personal life, what's been the worst moment of your personal life? Worst day of my life, Dan, was the day my, my dad passed away. Uh, it was uh, without question something I'd never expected or experienced. So when it happened, I mean, I can recall every moment of that day. It was horrendous. Nothing's come close. What did you learn from that that you carry with you now? And how has that affected your life as you've gone forward? What I took from it, Dan, was in relation to my mum, is that every day I spent with my dad meant something. Every day I didn't spend with him meant something. And therefore, every day I can, where I can have some interaction with my mum or my family is going to count for something when it's all over. And I was lucky that I, I was able to say that the only good thing about was that we'd had a fantastic relationship, you know, and to, to the day he died. What are the chances now that you're a new father? Your son is not, not even a year old now. Have you thought about something along the lines, how can I be as good a father to my son as my father was to me? Or is the world turning too fast for you to think that way? Well, it's an interesting question and I've thought about it a lot um, I mean the, the times are so different I, I guess what I don't want him doing is is being on an iPad for too long during the day um, I would encourage him to play football swim be outdoors as much as possible um, and learn how to talk because you know the more people text and the more people start to abbreviate these text messages 
it's going to be very difficult for people to communicate as you and I are able to communicate now in the future because if you, if you lose the ability to learn how to communicate with people, even telephone calls are rare now. If your life is like mine, a lot of people don't even want a telephone call anymore. They don't want to talk they to avoid you. It. They want to text or they want to email. A hundred percent. And I, I avoid emails as much as possible. Um, I, I, I'm not crazy about telephone calls. I like face-to-face -face communication with people. So that's, going back to my son, is that that's what I would, I mean, try and teach him, which is how important it is to be face-to-face -face with people, try not to text too much, and be kind to animals. Well, as you've gone through life, have you ever been what you consider to be too heavily into drink? <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, not, I, I mean, I have a rule, which is never drink in the daytime and never drink before, before you eat it and when you're having dinner. A couple of vodkas at night time. No, I once said it would be fun to do a live show drunk, and <laughs> I nearly got everyone to do it. You haven't had the guts to do that? I think I will one day. I've, it's just something... I think I was watching a Dean Martin uh, talk show years ago, and he was definitely sloshed, and it was one of the funniest interviews I've ever seen, and, that, and those were the days where you could go on a talk show and have a few whiskeys and a cigarette, and I thought, I would have loved to have been around those days. Well, if you decide to do it, please call me Collect before sex. <laughs> We'd like to tape it. We'd like to tape it. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> Who out there now has it? Who do you see or hear, you say to yourself, he or she has it. Whatever the X factor is, they have it. Without question, Beyonce. Because she has, more than any other artist I've ever met in my life, total utter steel in her eyes. She's what I call, and I mean this as a compliment, a killer. She is so aware of herself, the business, her star power, what it takes, uh, the hours she puts in. Um, she was like Michael Jackson. When, she, when Michael Jackson was at, on the top of his game, and he was asked, what are the three important things to be a star? And he said, rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. And when Michael was on the top of his game, he had that. And she has that. She, you can just tell that she is, like I said, she's a killer. Stands alone. At the moment, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Simon, what's ahead for you? You've accomplished so much. I always say hits pay the bills. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, some will pay more. You know, some will pay less, but at the end of the day, you can't survive without being number one or being close to number one. And you've got to have hits, whether you're making movies, TV shows, music. It is, that's all I ever say to my staff. Don't tell me a record going in at number 12 is better than a record going in at number one. If you're number one in the ratings, number one in the box office, you're doing great, and that's all we ever aspire to be. And like I said to you early on, for me personally, is to be relevant. I never want to be sitting in this chair talking to someone like you or, or, or judging a show where I really don't know what I'm talking about, because that's the point. You've got to stop doing what you're doing. Raymond, I haven't asked you this question. I've waited to the end. Who are you? I mean, who are you really? Happy and lucky. I would put it like that. I say happy and lucky because luck plays a part. Obviously, skill plays a part. Um, but I'm fortunate enough to say, uh, I was asked a question the other night over dinner, and we were playing this game. If you met the 16-year-old the, the self, and you were able to go back in time, and you met that person at 16, 
what would you say to that person? And I would have said, it's all going to work out fine. Uh, because genuinely, I didn't think it was. Which is hard to believe when you're 16. 100%. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't have changed anything. You know, it's, it's been a blast. And, and I'm lucky that I can, you know, wake up on a Monday morning without that, that pit in my, in my stomach and actually look forward to what I do. Tell me something about yourself that I don't know and the public doesn't know. I like people. I really, really do. I mean, it doesn't always come over that way, but... Uh, Behind the mask, do you really like people? Yeah, I really do. Um, I, what I don't get are people who are on TV or making records or making movies who bleat about the paparazzi or going out in public, etc., etc. I always say, well, then do a different job. You know, if you put yourself in that position and people are buying your records, watching your shows, the least you could do is shake their hands when they come up to you. I mean, it's, who cares? Because one day they won't. Well, is there anything that you came into this interview saying, listen, I'm going to talk to Dan, but if it's just one thing I want the audience to come away from this interview thinking and knowing about me, what would it be? Honestly, I think you've covered it. I'd like you to meet my dogs. I'd love to meet you, Doug. Can we get Squiddly and Diddly? Because although, although I've got one proper baby, these are my two other babies. Here they are. Here's Squiddly and Diddly. Come on, guys. Hello. <laughs> Say hello. <laughs> these are my two other babies. And how old are they? Uh, they're about a year old now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you trained them yourself. You don't have time to train the dogs. Uh, I've, Dan, I have tried. They are untrainable. <laughs> I mean, literally. Oh. <laughs> or maybe it's just me. Yeah. Simon, thank you. Dan, it's been an absolute Listen, pleasure. Thank I really you mean so that. so very much. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.